1: At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room?
0: And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again this week by Joshua Blank. Research director of the same project. How are you this beautiful February morning and Valentine's Day?
1: I'm just uh, I'm just basking in the love all around me. You know, yeah, i trying to at least. Well,
0: you know, yeah, I was gonna say trying my I, best. I know better than that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll 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 leave that be. These midweek Valentine's Day, yeah. they're they're difficult. Yeah, especially if you're an underperforming husband. Well, I'm
1: just thing. aren't they all in some way? Yeah, <laughs> right.
0: No, I hear you. Okay. (laughs) All right. So enough of that, that malarkey. That was
1: the personal portion of the
0: podcast. Yeah, yeah, the personal (laughs) portion of the podcast, you know. Uh, Uh, The podcast also gives lessons, which is plan better for Valentine's Day, kids. Um, uh, So the big public event in Texas politics this week is Governor Abbott's State of the State speech, which he'll be delivering this Thursday, February 16th, and we're recording this Tuesday mid-morning, uh, I guess is that all implied. So this Thursday, February 16th at 7 p.m. Central, broadcast uh, or offered for free broadcast and webcast by your friends at NextStar. And for the second year in a row, or the second address in a row, I should say, second session in a row, he's going to give his State of the State address, not at the Capitol, but from another location. This time it'll be the – this is being hosted by the Greater San Marcos Partnership – in the San Marcos Area ch- Chamber of Commerce. Uh, he did it from a little factory space in Lockhart two years ago. And, you know, I, I think this feels very modern and and very stage-managed, I think, to, to people. For old-timers, it's a little bit of a of a thing that he's not doing it at the Capitol. But be yeah. that as it may, I think we'll probably come back to that in, in a way. Well,
1: as I say, like, it's not at the Capitol, but it's also, like, not that far, no, but I mean but, it's not it's not like he's going to like, you know, some other part of the state to kind of give an address from, you know, wherever. No, it's, a, it's a,
0: you know, it's, it's a decent commute it's from a com- the mansion. It's a comfortable mansion.
1: commute from the mansion.
0: Right. And and but, you know, not in front of a legislative audience.
1: And I say is, I guess what I'm saying is, that, you know, I hadn't really thought about the fact of the close proximity of the two to the Capitol in the sense that, you know, the speech is kind of notable for not being at the Capitol more so than being from out in the state, if right. you will. Anyway,
0: And, you know, and in both. Well, anyway, yeah. yeah. So, (laughs) you know, we could parse this, you know, as as almost anything, we could parse it to an infinite, probably, to to, (laughs) to the degree of, you know, vastly diminishing returns. All that be, be all that as it may, we thought it'd be a good time to look at Governor Abbott's position vis-a-vis the legislature, vis-a-vis the public in the wake of his decisive win over Beto O'Rourke in 2022. And we've made a lot about, of how the interpretation of election results affects the behavior of incumbents and how it's had a material effect in Texas in the last few years. So, you know, we'll get to that. But uh, let's let's start with where the governor's poll numbers are, which are pretty good, right?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if we look, we've been uh, polling job approval numbers on Governor Abbott since 2015. Uh, and between March, between November of 2015 and March of 2021, over 19 surveys, more Texas voters approved of the job that Abbott was doing than disapproved. Now, when we look at the nine surveys that we've conducted since March of 2021, four saw more voters disapproving than approving, four saw more voters approving than disapproving, so the inverse, and one was even. So same number, share of voters approved and disapproved. And so this is, you know, we've talked about this a couple times on the yeah. podcast. You know, obviously, if you think it's been a, been a tough time to govern, yeah. and ultimately not only has it been a tough time to govern, but obviously over that time, you know, Abbott, I think, has obviously extended himself further and further out kind of into, I would say, you know, the Republican primary ether in a way that's, I think, yeah. made a lot of Democrats aware of who he is. So when we look at the change in his numbers, I want to be clear, a lot of that change is going to be driven by Democrats becoming more familiar with Abbott, independents, you know, would say to some extent turning off and then turning back on over the course of the pandemic. And then when we get to Republicans, it's a little bit more of a, a simpler story.
0: I think we should also say, well, go ahead with that, then I'll, I'll jump in.
1: Okay. So over the lifetime, you know, of this poll, no fewer than 70% of Republicans have expressed approval for Abbott. That's across 28 surveys uh, you know, since his election, his numbers have been improving slightly among Republicans. He had 78 percent approval before the election in June, 80 percent in August, 86 percent in October and 87 percent in December. You know, this has been this approval has been split, basically, between those who approve strongly and approve somewhat. Right. And that's been that's been pretty consistent. Right. Do you want to jump in here? Well, no. Sorry. I mean,
0: well, yeah, I mean, I think I was just, you know, I, what was occurring to me is one of the things that's interesting in retrospect and it's the kind of thing, I, you know, I think we've seen before, but it's worth remembering going forward. Mm-hmm. But in the longer term, you know, is that he did lose a little bit of momentum and a little bit of stature with Republicans in that period mid-pandemic that we've talked about. Yeah, But I think that also, you know, sent signals to people that turned out to be a little misleading in terms of both Republicans – feeling like he might be more vulnerable mm-hmm. in a primary, that turned out to not be the case. Yeah. And Democrats thinking he might be more vulnerable in the general, that also turned out to not be the case. I love that. But it's interesting, you know, to also see that part of that flip was a little bit of a, you know, and I, th- I think, you know, he dropped, what, like 10 or 12 points or something among Republicans in mid to late 2021, even really just, mid, that, yeah, kind of summer and, when and he basically fall. And as you said, that was a tough time to govern.
1: Well, basically, I mean, two things. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that was when he was taking the pandemic more seriously than was, you know, let's say the president. And really, when the president kind of said, okay, states, do what you're going to do. And Abbott kind of was actually kind of pretty serious at that point. And and then before kind of he got into conflict with the locals about how far to go and kind of went down that direction for a while. Well,
0: and, and, you know, I, you know, to be that happened. And also, you know, I mean, I think he, he as you imply, you know, he, you know, the, he and his team put their fingers to the wind and saw which way the wind was blowing in the Republican Party. Well,
1: and then, you know, just in the taba- you know, to just go back to what you just said there about, you know, kind of the elite interpretation of that. And I was thinking actually about kind of the, the, the public opinion swing there. And I think one of the things that people sort of assume is that, like, these changes are going to be durable. I think, you know, when you're in the right. space and you watch it closely, there's this idea, and I feel like I hear it all the time, where it's like, you know, something happens, whatever it might be, you know, and it could be like, well, you know, Abbott goes out too far on, you know, or not far enough on COVID restrictions. Or, you know, say like the Dobbs decision comes down. And there's this expectation that, one, there's going to be this dramatic shift. And it's like, well, look, first of all, people kind of know what they think generally about these things. So the the, the amount yeah. of, of of swing is going to be limited. And then to the extent that, like, you know, someone like Abbott sees, like, a decline of I mean, his job approval among Republicans of, like, 10 points, most of it going to kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure, not disapproval. Yeah. Well, you know, look, He's still a Republican. He still has a very, very effective political operation. He still is, you know, probably the most powerful elected official in the state. I mean, that's debatable, right? We'll get to that in a second. He's one of the most powerful elected officials in the state. It doesn't take a lot of work to get that those 10, the 10% back into your column. Right. And I think that's kind of what people...
0: Yeah, and if you're very... I mean, you know, look, I mean, the events can overtake you, sure, nature of things, but if you're politically skilled and you've got the resources and the tools and the institutional positioning at your disposal and you're very attentive to these things, mm-hmm. which, you know, yeah. whatever you want to say about Governor Abbott and his team, they are very attentive to his positioning with the public.
1: Right. So... You know, other things that we found on you know, polling that I think, you know, sets his kind of context in place. You know, looking at policy uh, positions, we asked in October of last year uh, whether voters approved or disapprove of the job Abbott was doing across 11 different issue areas. And among Republicans, no fewer than 57% of the job of approved of the job he was doing across all 11 er- uh, issue areas. And that 57% was for climate change. You know, if we take right. climate change out, uh, the floor for Abbott among Republicans was 67% approval across uh, everything. And that the lowest one was for, his handling of abortion access. We could parse that on its own. His strongest areas among Republicans, immigration at the border, he had 88% of approval. Crime and public safety, 84%, and the economy, 82%.
0: Roughly speaking, the issue's most salient to Republicans in polling during that same period.
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, not surprising then, you know, no more than 50 percent approval on any of these issues. Uh, you know, once we conclude Democrats and independents into the mix, right. climate change becomes one of the lowest issue areas, is abortion access and the electric grid, which all receive less than 40 percent approval. But I think the, the broader point here is that among the majority of the voters in the party that is electing all of the, seat, the elected late seats, right. he's he's sitting pretty, you know, he's sitting pretty among the issues that matter.
0: Yeah. And, and the other bookend of those areas where his approval numbers are the lowest, those are the areas that were by yeah. and large pretty salient to Democrats, where they have intensely formed and you know heavily cued attitudes.
1: Right, and that's a trade. I mean, the reality is Abbott yeah. can be a little bit maybe, you know, let's just say a little farther to the right of the median Republican on a couple of those issues, and he's still in a pretty sweet spot you know, relative to the the electorate overall. Well, and
0: speaking of, you know, your relative positioning, he's, you know, we can also talk about how he looks compared to other actors and, you know, anybody, again, one of those moments where if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't need an explanation of how contentious, well, contentious is actually not the right word, about uh, how heavily freighted the relationship with Mm. the other key figure in the state, Dan Patrick has been. Yes, governor.
1: I was thinking maybe strategic, the relationship. Yeah, I, I was,
0: you know, strategic passed through my mind, I thought, but that's also, it's not quite... No,
1: it needs a little more. You
0: know, and I need a little, yeah, I, you know, openly contentious is not quite no. right. I, th- I think it is often actually contentious behind the scenes, but to be fair to what the public sees, that contention, you have to be paying attention. You have to be paying to, a lot you know, of attention. Uh, a, it's a, it's a semi, the semiotics of that are complicated and require the right filter. But nonetheless, you know, we should, we can look at his standing relative to other actors, particularly the lieutenant governor. And it does tell us something kind of interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, for much of Abbott's tenure, I mean, he's obviously maintained a significantly higher profile than the lieutenant governor, being that that he's the governor. But, you know, after three elections in the beginning of each's fifth session in the executive branch, you know, the gap has really narrowed between these two. So first to say, you know, the share of voters with, with no opinion. I just sort of picked kind of three time points just to kind of illustrate the sure. point. So in October of 2016, 25% of Texas voters had no opinion of Abbott, like couldn't register a positive or negative view, 38% for Patrick. Jump ahead 2 years to October 2018, Abbott goes down to 17%. So one in four voters you know in 2016 couldn't basically didn't have an opinion about Abbott and went down to 17% in 2018, Patrick dropped to 25%. So from 38 to 25. We jump to December 2022, only 10% of voters don't have a view of Abbott. 21% don't have a view of Patrick. So one in 10 versus uh, one in five. But what you can see is there's a consistent pattern going on, which has been about a 10-point gap throughout in terms of fact that as we've gone along, you know, not surprisingly, Abbott's name ID has gone up. A lot of that has been because Democrats and independents have sort of developed negative views. This is also true of Patrick. Right. And so what you end up seeing is you know they, they, they're not as far apart, really, as they used to be. And I, it's not even that they're not as far apart as they used to be. They're as far apart as they used to be. But the share of people not holding an opinion anymore is becoming, yeah. I wouldn't say, I'll say this, potentially structurally insignificant in the sense right. that if you don't really have a view of the governor, you don't really have a view of, Le- of the lieutenant governor. Are you like a registered voter who turns out in midterm elections? Yeah. Do you show up in Republican primaries? No.
0: Well, and one thing, you know, another way to kind of look at that is, well, actually you're going to do Republican approval. Yeah. So let, let me just, so
1: that. I'll yeah. just do the Republican approval, we'll cut you out of this data yeah. for a second. So anyway, if we look same same time period, you know, we look at Abbott's. Uh, approval among Republicans. In October 2016, he had 75% approval, 42% strong. 2018, it was 89%, 69% strong. And again, after sort of some, some waves and some peaks and valleys, December 22, he's still at 89% job approval. But here, only 48% strong. So in tw- October 2018, 69% strong approval. December 2022, 48% strong approval. So that's sort of the you know the intensity. And again, Governing makes you make decisions and and ultimately, you know, Republicans can still be approving, but not as strongly so at this point. For Patrick, it's about, you know, started about 20-point gap. Abbott, again, 75% approval in 2016. Patrick was at 56%. In 2018, again, Abbott was at 89. Patrick got up to 77%. So, big jump. And again, December 22, Abbott's at 89. Patrick's at 77. So, Patrick, again, still, I mean, if you kind of, you know, outside of Donald Trump... (laughs) you're not going to get much higher name ID and positive name ID and really not even much higher among Republican voters for anybody. And Patrick's not far off the pace at this point. I mean, to be honest. Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, I mean, it's not a great comparison, but I mean, if you did want to, we don't have, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you wanted to compare that in the broader universe, in the way that you're implying, look at John Cornyn's numbers, right? You know, John Cornyn, in a lot of ways, I mean, he doesn't need to No. but you know, push come to shove, he he wouldn't kill for these numbers, because I think Cornyn is comfortable no. where he is. But there have been times when, you know, Cornyn would probably appreciate Patrick-like numbers. Yeah,
1: Cor- I think Cornyn would trade numbers for right. Patrick. Right. So, you
0: know, and then the other, you know, something I would add to that, after we talked about this before he came up here, I went and looked at a couple other things. And, um, you know, one of the subterranean issues here, or just you know, not even that subterranean, just bar- you know, barely subsurface issues here, has been the contention over how each is viewed by Republican primary voters right. and most specifically, within those primary voters, the most conservative voters in the state. Mm-hmm. right. So I was looking at, you know, just our most recent yeah. December 22 numbers broken down by intensity of conservatism. Mm-hmm. you know, and it's interesting in, in December in, in that December poll, just among those who identified as extremely conservative. So the most
1: conservative in our measure.
0: Right, which is a relatively small three point I mean, it's, pocket yeah. of the party and of the, and of the populace, but not insignificant. But obviously the target audience for these guys right. a lot of time. I mean, I think you have to assume that if what we think the dynamic here a lot of the time is that both the governor and the lieutenant governor governor wanting to make sure that the other doesn't get too far to the right. Yeah. Which gets you kind of stutter stepping over time pretty far to the right, as we've seen. And still, you know, I mean, and, and the rap on 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 Governor Abbott during the twenty twenty-two primary was that he wasn't conservative enough. Right. But as of December, among these extreme conservatives, his approval rating was ninety percent, sixty percent strong approval. Mm-hmm. Patrick was comparable, fifty but a little lower, fifty-two percent, thirty percent. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know one might expect, given the way each projects and yeah. given how they're positioned institutionally, that Patrick would have if there was going to be an area where Patrick would have an advantage. Yeah, it might be here, and it's not. Yeah, they're just closer to parity.
1: Yeah, I was say it's close. I mean, it's interesting to say. I mean, the thing that I think the story that I take away from this, and sort of preparing for this discussion and kind of thinking about, is you know. Is, is, you know, if I say, like, okay, what do you take away from this? Like, one, okay, first and foremost, yeah, you know, Abbott's numbers aren't as strong as they were before, but that's among mostly people that he's not trying to get, whose, whose votes he's not competing for. Right. Number one. He stands in a very strong position rep- among Republicans. I could say, at, you know, as strongly as, you know, Trump ever probably stood. And in terms of, you know, the relative approval ratings, I think, you know, they look pretty good. I mean, generally yeah. speaking, he's got more strong approval than somewhat approval for most of this among Republicans. The interesting thing in this and about this dynamic we're talking about is the fact that. Patrick has been slowly catching up. Right. He's not there, but to the extent that he's used his position and used his tenure in office and used, you know, I think his skill set well, you know, you're seeing him, you know, at this point now, this idea of, you know, well, these two guys are kind of in competition with each other which I think can be overblown, I mean, like a lot. But to the extent that they're over, you know, in a competition over agenda's control, uh credit claiming, that piece of it? Yeah. You know, it's Whereas before you'd say, you know, I would would give Patrick the edge on, like, raw political skills because he came up through the Senate and the legislative process a little bit.
0: And talk radio.
1: You know, and Abbott certainly had sort of the resource skill and the position, right, and the name ID and that kind of the bully pulpit piece of it. But now, you know, it's like those... Those distinctions are a little bit less. You know, Abbott's better politically, and Patrick is a little bit more well-known and has figured out how to use, you know, his office to at least, you know, get his profile in a similar space. And so it's sort of, it's making, you know, again, I don't necessarily think they're in competition as much or in the way that people say they are, but it sort of looks like more of a fair fight now, you know, in some ways.
0: Yes. I mean, I think the competition between them is, I, I probably have a stronger sense of that or put a little more into that than you do, but yeah. I, you know, but I, but I think that point in terms of where they are right now is, mm-hmm. is interesting. You know, we'll talk a little bit about their political future maybe before we get out of here, each of theirs, but, you know, going back to the state of the state. So, you know, I, I think you've done a good job of kind of posing where Abbott stands, which is in pretty good shape right. going into the state of the state. Um. So what is the institutional setup? I think it's in terms of the way that we look at the different domains and try to you know at least reflect a little bit of political science here and there you know this is a a, a period where the governor has some public leverage to inflect the agenda and mm-hmm. you know we talk to this, you know, talk to students about this. It's in the textbook. It's some, you know, all of these different things, but it's worth recapping that, you know, going into the state of the state, you know, the governor will, has the option. And I think everybody expects that he will declare some emergency items. And as we've explained before, the notion of emergency items comes out of the constitution. If the governor declares certain areas of legislation, emergency items, they are exempted from some aspects of the constitutional order and and it enables the legislature to consider these bills sooner right right, simply put and so this is an area where the governor does have potential influence now there are times when the governor's governors in the past including governor abbott have declared things emergency items and the legislature has more or less ignored it yeah you know kind of depends on what the flow of politics is at the time that's what people will be watching for in the process Mm -hmm. i mean i you know They'll watch it in terms of the rhetoric, et cetera. But what what people will start taking notes on is when he starts elaborating emergency items. Yeah, um, I, yeah. You know, and that doesn't mean again. I don't want to. You know, and and then the governor, then you know, his position to some degree recedes. Now, obviously, institutionally, his ability to veto legislation, which are pretty extensive, including line item vetoes, mm-hmm. hovers over the the, pro- the process, and the governor and his staff, and and it, particularly this governor, play. You know, a pretty prominent role that's not very public Yeah. in terms of people proposing legislation and people taking the, the temperature of the governor with his legislative staff in terms of, you know, how the governor views what they're doing and what the governor's priorities are and what his, you know, and, and what he will not consider.
1: Right, there's no advantage to any of the governing coalition to have the legislature look seeming to be seriously considered a bill from the you know, majority right. Republican Party to have the governor publicly issue a veto threat. Right. I mean that doesn't that doesn't do anything for anybody. Yeah, and it, you know,
0: and look, I mean, I, I think if that happens, it's usually you know you know there's something going on. Well,
1: right, right? If, if it is, it's it's a very clear decision right. to do that.
0: And of course, the other you know the other you know the other power the governor has here that that doesn't make manifest you know isn't making manifest now and is really. You know, if if you've got the emergency items as kind of a a high point of agenda inflection at the beginning of the process mm-hmm. or near near the beginning of the process, at the end it becomes a threat of a special session.
1: Yeah, right? and I think, um, and I mean, all of this in my mind is like, you know, this is sort of the opening chapter. And we're going to move on in a, in, a, in a little bit to sort of to Patrick's priorities, which is yeah. the other part of this, which is you know, going back to where we were starting on this a little bit. I mean, this is kind of the beginning, really the. I mean, to me, this is like the opening salvo in sort of this question of, you know, who is going to get responsibility for the successes and blame for the failures of right. the session, right? And this is where Abbott gets to make, you know, his first big, you know, his first big statement of the session saying, these are my priorities. And he can now say for the next, you know, couple months, this is, these were my priorities for the legislature. Right. And either they followed through on what I told them to do.
0: Right. And, and, the, and, and so, this, will, and, and this, you know, should the, should the governor want it to. This will come back at the end when we start talking about bargaining over a special session and things like this. So, right. so let's, you know, I mean, a little bit. So, uh, you know, th- what is the substance of what the governor seems to want and right. why? Now, you know, we've talked a lot about here about his campaign themes. And I think pretty straightforwardly, you know, the the, the governor's been very vocal about wanting, like everyone else, at least in the leadership of the Republican Party, about wanting some kind of property tax relief. Right. Um, You know, he's, you know, been very direct. I'll be shocked if border security is not seen as an emergency item. Now, that's front-loaded since there's been no pushback on more border security spending in the preliminary budgets. So, you know, hard to imagine we're not going to see that. Um, You know, and then I think, you know, there's the question of, You know where does he pick and choose in the mixture of things that we've been talking about a lot Mm -hmm. since the election, but certainly since the election was over, between the kind of very broadly speaking governance, eco devo, economic development bucket, and you know the red meat locker. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's great. I love that. Because, I mean, I'm sitting here, like, I'm kind of writing my, as you're talking, about, am and the first thing I wrote was, all right, property taxes, okay. Next one is like, border, right. right. And then I have, like, kind of this, I'm like, well, you could, you know, on one side, you could imagine, you know, the electric grid, you could imagine, you know, broader discussions about infrastructure that people are talking about with, right. with the surplus and, you know, given that. And then there's another bucket, which I said, like, he could talk about something having to do with education. Right. And when I say something, I'm like, and what, I'm not sure. It right. could be about. It could be about, you know, kids who are transgender. It could be about vouchers. It could be about parental rights. It could be about all of those things.
0: It could also be school safety.
1: It, then that would almost fall more. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting inner sort of in between. Right? It's, yeah, uh, I mean, but I guess what I'm
0: realizing is I should have had a, an intermediate bucket there. Probably. Well, I and mean, the
1: truth is nothing stops him from doing all these things, really. I mean, but but the, but I think, you know, what's interesting is, and you know, given the fact that, I mean, to your point, this largely reflects the themes of the campaign. It reflects the priorities of Republican voters and especially right. Republican primary voters. And I think we'll get a sense even more when we see what the list is is sort of where the relative weight of this stuff is. I mean, we right. you know, we wrote a we had a podcast, I mean, we wrote a piece about sort of the relationship of the business community to the Republican yes. Party. And it's interesting, I mean we know property taxes in the border are those are in there in some way, right. shape, or form, you know, whether they're an emergency item or not, they're they have pride of place. But then it's like, you know, you start to think about like, OK, <laughs> you know, what what is what is next right now? You know, are we going after woke businesses? Are we trying to like elevate these issues that are very, very mobilized and in, in and around the suburbs and like sort right. of school board elections and things like that? Or is this a time to talk about broadband expansion and infrastructure and 313 and, you know, incentives? Yeah. Like what what's the direction? You know, yeah. You and, and
0: I think, you know, we've been talking again. We've been talking for the last few weeks that. About all of these things that are sort of appearing on the table, yeah, to set the stage for the bargaining to come, right. And this is going to be an interesting, you know, this is going to be a big part of the table setting, you know, which 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 of those things appear, and so you you know, you we might as well like crank out what's going on. So you know, the other you know, uh, uh, more inside baseball event this week, although you know, the media is picking it up.
1: They've been waiting.
0: Um, what and and you know, certainly inside the you know inside the inside the, the the beltway right in Austin anyway. People have been waiting to see, you know, how the how the lieutenant governor was going to fill out the first thirty bills that were reserved for priority bills on in on the Senate side. And, you know, through I I'm, you know, as we were talking before the podcast, no accident of timing. Yeah. Uh the lieutenant governor has released his list of priorities. And you know a little bit of context here before we talk about you know this list, which is kind of a you know in terms of the buckets we were just talking about, it's kind of a kitchen sink list. Um, yeah. You know within the universe that we're talking about, but it is interesting. You know we've talked about the governor's positioning. You know, as, as Lieutenant Governor said in some of the the verbiage accompanying the release of these mm-hmm. of these thirty bills, these that are that are really just subject lines at yeah. this point. Um, you know, it used to be like they'd, re- they'd reserve 20. Yeah. A couple sessions ago, Lieutenant Governor thought it was appropriate to start reserving 30. Yeah. This is released right as the governor is going to declare, you know, I think last time there were a half dozen emergency items.
1: Yeah,
0: um, So there's 30 things. You can knock a couple of these out. You know, SB one is the budget because the budget's this right. year. The budget's originating on the Senate side. And you can group
1: some of these together. As,
0: yeah, there's you can group some of these. SB thirty is the supplemental. That's just a function of right. again it being a year where the the budget process is starting on the Senate side. Um, but in between, you've got a, a a lot of options that you know will will absolutely be compared to the governor's emergency items the moment we know what those are.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that's and that's exactly why Patrick released them, you know, yeah. as he did. And it's interesting, I mean, going back to how we were talking about looking at the views of Republicans, I mean, with uh, the release of these uh, of these priorities, the statement said, you know, from Patrick, said that these proposals, you know, are going to be supported by Texans. And he said, quote, because they largely reflect the policy supported by the conservative majority of Texans, right. which I which I love because, I mean, to some extent as a public opinion guy, it's like, this is what we've been talking about. It's like, look, you just have to look at Republican voters. And and even so, you should really look at the most conservative Republican voters. And here it's just like, yeah, these are the priorities of, you know, are going to be supported because the majority, you know, a majority of the voters in the majority coalition are going to support these policies. And,
0: you know, look, when you have 28 bills to play with, you get a lot of breath.
1: Yes, (laughs) you do.
0: A lot of room to run. So like on one hand, you've got You know, around the middle of the list, Senate Bill 9 and Senate Bill 10, you know, empowering teacher rights, a teacher pay raise, adding a 13th check for retired teachers. Right. You know, it keeps going through the, you know, we were talking about education. And this really does underline what you were talking about. What will the education items and whether they're emergency items or not, what will the education portion of Governor Abbott's speech look like? And if you look at, you know, for those of you following along at home, if you look at the list of items, you know, Senate Bill 8 through, you know, roughly 15, inter, actually roughly 17 or 18 encompass education, if you go K through 12 and higher ed. And they range from these teacher pay issues, but through things like protecting children from obscene books and libraries You know, ending child gender modification, protecting women, college sports, banning critical race theory in higher education and a favorite of many of my colleagues here, eliminating tenure at general academic institutions, among other things. Right. That really gives you a sense of even within education, there's a lot of room to roam here.
1: You know, I think you know this and I think you'll back me on this. I don't usually like point out when I was right about things. I'm pretty good. I mean, like I, you know, partially because we work in a probabilistic business, so I generally just <laughs> am like, you know, I'm reaching into one of those urns and pulling out a ball. So I'm yeah, kind of sure. like, I have to be reasonable about this. But I've been kind of talking about the, the, you know, how crowded the education space yeah. is, and if you do what you just did and you say, okay, there's 30 bills here, and if I go here, I go from eight to 19. Yeah, involve education. And some of those are higher ed, some of those are public ed, but a th- almost a third of these, actually a third of these. Our education-related bills. Right. That's a lot. You know, I mean, that's like this is you know, I mean, it's really this does kind of lay out, and the fact that they're all priorities is like, well, they can't all be priorities. Priority is actually a singular word, anyway. So and aside, there's an
0: interesting, you know, I mean, there's an interesting dynamic, House-Senate dynamic here. Well, that's to digress slightly. You know, on no, no, this is let's talk about that. In that we have, you know, an experienced ally of the lieutenant governor, mm-hmm. allies of not quite the right word probably, but in the education chair and, and a unified education chair that has authority over education and higher ed in the Senate, right? Uh, Senator Brandon Creighton. And you're going to have a first time education chair, higher ed chair, uh, in the house. Yep. And so, you know, the dynamic there is going to be interesting. I, I think a lot of these are going to be Going to have very tough sledding in the well, house.
1: And this, and this is what's going to be interesting. We were talking about this earlier. You know, and, and we sort of – I mean, to, to be sort of social sciences, you would already raised it. You know, there's something sort of – we think about game – I think about game theory in the sense of, you know, we call this a repeated game, right? Yep. All the players go in. They know what's going to happen. But the thing is if you play a game over and over again, you got to adjust your strategies, right? Because – and you have to adjust your strategies not only because you learn – but because you're assuming the other side is adjusting their strategies, right? And I've already talked about kind of like you know my take of like Abbott's dynamic a little bit, and you know we're going to see the beginning of this this week where he gets to say, okay, go do these things. He can take an extreme position. He says, let's, hey, let's, let's let's cut property taxes by you know, seventy billion. It doesn't, yeah. you know, and ultimately he could say any number he wants because the legislature will get wherever they're going to get. And he can say, look what I got for you, right? But the thing is, Patrick knows this now. And the thing is, when Patrick had his big, big priority list back with the bathroom bill, Abbott came in and in the special session, he basically scooped up that list, made it the special session agenda, yeah. and then took credit for what they were able to pass. And then blamed them for what they weren't right. able to pass. So one right. of the things that I think people have been pointing out is an interesting thing to watch in this sort of very inner dynamic is like, okay, so is is the pacing. Right, I mean, Patrick obviously has the ability to make this legislation move. Basically, and again, this legislation doesn't even exist yet. But to the extent that it will exist very soon, he can make it move pretty much as fast as he wants it to within the constitution. And they move
0: his priorities very rapidly and very purposefully. Last right within
1: constitutional limits. Yeah. Okay. But then the question becomes, you know, but remember,
0: we are talking about the Senate.
1: Well, right. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) So they go, and let's say, let's say they just run through in the first, you know. 100 days, they knock out all 30 of these and they send them all to the house. Now, first of all, as you point out, the house may have just a functional problem processing all this stuff with the committee makeup and ideological whatever, right? But I guess what I'm starting to think about is like, what's better or worse for Patrick? Is it better to send all this stuff to the house and have them screw it up or to try to like maybe even prioritize within this list to try to try to make you know, try to get as much as you can out of this because one of the things, knowing that Abbott's sitting there on the side and he's going to take credit for stuff, but he's also going to point to the things you didn't do. Right. Is it worth it to you to send a bunch of stuff to the house to then have them not pass some of it out of backlash? Which, I mean, honestly, like that's kind of what what has yeah. been happening lately to then basically end up being the foil that Abbott's waiting for. Yeah. And so, kind of, you know, it's what's the next stage of this is sort of the. Well, and I
0: also, you know, I, as part of that equation, you know, I'd be remiss, particularly with our with our listeners that are, you know, creatures of the legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't also underestimate the degree to which, you know, the games are linked, but this is also an iterative game with a speaker. Right. You know, and a speaker in which there is, you know, clearly uh, uh, a level of antagonism between the speaker and the lieutenant governor right now that goes beyond the pre-programmed, you know institutional So
1: doesn't it's tension not tension
0: between the house and the senate. So
1: no indication, I mean this is a joke I should say before I so no indication from you that the speaker and 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 the lieutenant governor are banding up so that they can you know be a better counterweight to the governor and the agenda Well, space. you know,
0: I was at an off the record event so I can't share details last night at the 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 tea lip roast of uh state representative Sinfronia Thompson in which the last all of the last six speakers including the current speaker spoke you know got up and roasted each other and Miss Thompson Uh, you know I would say that there was you know a lot of stray fire also aimed at the at the lieutenant governor we'll leave it at that so I yeah I don't think that there the there's been any repair yeah and you know look I don't think either one of them has has worked at all to hide that I mean you know, we've talked on the podcast before about, you know, at an on-the-record event, speaker Feeling. you know, when when asked by by Evan Smith, the, the, the interview at the Tribune Festival in the fall, you know, whether, you know, he thought that they would be resuming the breakfast between the big three, and I think a lot of those the comptroller was at, and he, you know, if they'd been doing that. And he was like, you know, the speaker just kind of pretty good stage pause and said, I, I don't really, I'm not a big breakfast eater.
1: I think he said something else. And that was like, our staffs talk regularly. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> stuff like that.
0: So, all right. So, you know, to, to wind this up. So what are we looking for? You know you know what? Before we wind this up, I do want to flag something just its continuity with some previous things we yeah, talked sure. about. You know, it, I think it is also interesting. And it is something that I'll be watching for pretty closely in the state of the state because – You know, it seems like it's something that has been bubbling up, and that is, you know, Senate Bill 28 is addressing Texas' future water needs. Yeah. You know, you mentioned infrastructure going through, and, I, you know, it's hard not to wonder whether there's going to be follow-through on that in terms of, you know, this discussion of water, you know, that started to appear, I think, you know, at a very low profile in the the electoral season – but pretty quickly afterwards, uh, you know, you started seeing this discussion of water kind of popping up, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be interested to see if that's a point of, if there, if that's a shared point, and and, I, you know, I, I'm sure given what we've seen that the governor will mention it. I'll be interested to see if, if water is an emergency item.
1: You know, as so as long as we're doing a little thing, I'll add to that and just say, you know, I'm curious given, you know, the continuity of the discussion we've been having, you know, when they just. Dis- what the vehicle for uh, I'm, I'm curious of what the vehicle for increasing the reliability of the electric grid looks like.
0: Yeah. Given
1: the set of attitudes that we've been talking about towards business generally, right? Because ultimately, you know, yes, the oil and gas industry has a certain you know has a certain pride of place and is is lionized in Texas in a certain way. However, I got to say, you know, sitting here and looking at the data that we collected in December towards businesses generally, I know what Democrats are going to say about the oil and gas industry. No problem. I pretty much have a you know a sense of what independents are going to be leaning. they're probably going to lean in the democratic direction, I think in most cases. you know what is what do, what are Republican attitudes towards the oil and gas industry in Texas right now? And to the extent that we come out of this session, you know, what kind of resources do the oil and gas industry get out of this? and what kind of reaction do we see from that? Yeah, you know? I mean, I mean, is remember, there a lot of know, room it, for it, that. And
0: this is where we you know we should plug the piece that we did last week or I think we rolled it out Friday. So we're gonna call it it's a piece for this week. Yeah, sure. In which we went through a lot of that data um on attitudes towards business. And you know, to your point, remember the you know what we did is we asked we asked that you know we asked the the poll respondents, do you think, you know, bi- you know business and corporations are doing too much t- or too much too little or about the right amount in response to the following the top too much response among Republicans was climate change. And LGBTQ rights. Right, and LGBTQ rights. So, you know, that both of those things, are but in terms of what we're talking about, very it's, interesting. It's
1: it's, it's, a, it's a very, uns- I, at this point to me, it seems a kind of an unsettled space.
0: Well, I mean, I, I guess what I would say, you know, I th- and I think, again, God, a lot of social science in this podcast. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going take, on take here. a shower. But, I mean, I, I think part of that is that that reflects, one, the, com- you know, you know, the massive complexity mm-hmm. of a problem that people experienced in a non-complex way. In other words, this is on people's radar because a bunch of people huddled in the dark with the lights out when it was very cold a couple of years ago and have not, and are well, still, and recently have seen well, some and every time, t- And
1: every time the lights go out now, they're reminded of
0: it. Right, lights. and so there's that. But the area, you know, within the policy area, like a lot of big complex areas like this that include these big multiple big sectors with a lot of influence in the system there's not elite consensus right now on what to do about this in fact there is a big you know ongoing policy fight in which you know essentially the first effort to solve this or to not to solve it but to address it in the process has not really worked out in other words you know PUC came up, PUC came up with a proposal using some consultants, and that proposal is not really being accepted as is. Right. right. And so I think that is exacerbating this, you know, in terms of, you know, the the classic model of complex policy issue. Public, you know, yep. that reaches a degree of salience with the public. They look to elites for clear guidance, for partisan cues, and Republicans are actually fighting among themselves. I mean, there's th- there's no consensus among Republicans, including to date among the big three, and so.
1: Well, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, as a, as someone who sits on the public opinion side, knowing that people's you know opinions about this are relatively you know pretty constrained and pretty limited. But if I think, you know, if we get to the back end of this, and we're, you know, polling in late, you know, let's say in April or March, you know, uh, and we're asking about, you know, some kind of multi-billion-dollar seed money for an infrastructure bank for the oil and gas industry, I don't know if that's going to get a good reception among the public. Well, you know, I mean, in our polling, it, you
0: know, it, you know, that is one of those things where, as people always say to say to us, "Well, you could have asked that differently." Absolutely,
1: <laughs> totally. totally.
0: I, and I think that's an artifact of what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, right? no. Well, but I mean, so. but, to, but to your point, I think the thing is, is what's interesting about that, it is definitely a reflection of, of, you know, how you ask it. And but I mean, but to make the point, the, the sort of other considerations that one might bring to bear on this that may or may not influence the question at this point. They're all pretty heavy, right? So it's like it's yeah. these sort of orientations towards business, orientation towards state supportiveness. It's also climate change, and so there's a lot of things that can kind of get yeah. into that space. That can kind of, I think, you know, normally I would say, yes. a lot of
0: competing frames that aren't going to aren't going to aren't going to relate directly to whatever the the policy proposal on the table is, which is going to be massively complex. No right. matter, I mean, you know, there's going to be a couple hundred people in the state that fully understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. what is going on there.
1: But that's actually what creates the, what creates all the space right, exactly. for it to shape yeah. opinion, you know, in a way that I think in this case, I'd normally say, yes, the question matters. Maybe it shifts things a couple points here or there. But when you start thinking about like, well, we'll what else, you know, we start to think about the ways people are going to message test this yeah. and work with it. I could see, you know, there's going to be a lot of flux in this. Yeah. So
0: we'll, so we'll almost certainly spend at least part of the next week podcast, you know, as long as ever, you know, we're all, you know, we all survive the next week. Um, Parsing this. So to round up, you know, a few things to kind of, you know, like questions going into this, and maybe we'll come back to these, you know. Um clearly as we've said, in terms of the state level politics and the legislative process, you know, what are those emergency items gonna be? Mm-hmm. What gets, you know, relative pride of place? How much how much real estate do different topics get in the get in the speech? Um, and then on to, you know, a matter of speculation that we really talked about a lot. We don't have to come back to this. You know, we're going to wind up having to talk about it next week, so there's no point yeah. getting into it too much right now. But you know, how much do the themes that the governor articulates, and how and and how much of the style in which he articulates them, you know, tap into very familiar, prominent national political discussions right now. You know, how does how does Abbott balance these traditional economic development kind of themes? And we've hit on this already, but with the more you know, provocative, and I would say, you know, to some degree, and it's fair. I think even some of the more reactionary themes that are really front and central, front and, cent- front and center for so many Texas and national Republicans right now, and are front and center on, on Lieutenant Governor Patrick's list. How does that all shake out? And and so, and then and then, how do we? How does this feed the speculation about what the governor's plans are for the future? Yeah, and uh, uh, and by extension you know, kind of every other statewide official and Republican political entrepreneur in the place. So it's going to be it's going to be a very loaded kind of moment, I think. Now, we're dorking out on this. Most Texans will not pay very much attention, but, you know, that's what we do. Yep. That's what you're here for. (laughs) All right. So um, thanks for being here, Josh. Uh, Fun conversation, at least for us. We'll see how the listeners respond, if at all. Uh, Thanks again, as always, to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio, in the College of Liberal Arts here at UT Austin. Uh, We'll post some of the the polling that we've talked about in a blog post at our website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.